We're going to look at the Gospel of John. We're starting at verse 41. And we're going to go all the way through verse uh, 71. Okay, this is God's word. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the li- <clears throat> and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, "How can this man give us his flesh to eat?" So Jesus said to them, "Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day." For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As a living Father sent me, and I live live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if uh, you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is a spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who, who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Uh, God, we thank you that uh, you give us your word, and we thank you that in this time uh, we can hear from you. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, continually be speaking to us uh, through this word and that whatever we need uh, conviction of, um, that you would convict our hearts, you would pierce our hearts, that we might be able to see the goodness and the beauty uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay. 
this it's actually a problem with Microsoft Edge anyway uh, <coughs> in certain cultures during certain eras in history uh, there was an advantage to being a Christian I would say we're uh, now in modern day New York kind of moving away from that where there's it's not as uh, socially advantageous uh, in terms of being a Christian and maybe in, in some circles it's actually a disadvantage if you are uh, a Christian so for example um, you know, there was a time, I think, in the U.S. where much of the, the culture in the U.S. was shaped by Christianity. Um, and maybe it's still true. I don't know if it's still true, but maybe it's still true in the Bible Belt today where there's kind of this social benefit of being a Christian. And uh, being a Christian meant that you were accepted in a particular culture. Um, and so, you know, I think in, in certain fields, uh, like, for example, in the field that uh, now where I work, you know, I've come across like uh, people in finance or financial advisors who will market themselves as like Christian advisors, and I've come across people who are pitching certain uh, funds that they're selling, and they, they pitch it as Christian funds. And uh, this is just my opinion, so this is not biblical, but I'm not a big fan of that. <laughs> I'm not a big, a big fan of using uh, Christian as an adjective uh, because uh, I, I tend to think it's probably more about like marketing than anything else. Uh, do I want a, a Christian plumber or do I want a good plumber? Well, I want a good plumber, right? Uh, do I want a, a Christian engineer or a good engineer? I want a good engineer. Um, I heard Keller say, do I want a Christian pilot or a good pilot? Well, if you're in the plane, you want a good pilot, right? Uh, my only exception to that, I think, is probably teachers. I think it matters whether a teacher is a Christian because they're communicating ideas and beliefs in the content of their teaching, but I think for probably the majority of vocations, I, I don't necessarily think adding Christian in front of it uh, makes a difference as to whether someone is good at what they do or not. And uh, that doesn't mean I don't think faith matters to work, so don't misunderstand me there. I do think it matters, but uh, I guess I'm just critiquing the use of Christian as an adjective when you come to label it in terms of your vocational identity. Uh, but why do people pitch themselves as distinctively Christian, whether it pertains to, like, music or whether it pertains to finance or whether it pertains to even politics, right? Uh, I could be wrong, but, again, I think probably a lot of people are probably doing it, whether knowingly or unknowingly, to enhance their own brand. It's a, it's a marketing tactic. And uh, if that's what's happening, then uh, I actually don't think it's all that different from the crowds that we see here in John chapter 6. We are going through a series in the Gospel of John, and last week we started looking at this story in John chapter 6 where Jesus, he miraculously feeds thousands and thousands of people with just five barley loaves and two fish. And we started looking at the discourse last week, and we focused on the substance of what Jesus was saying here, which is this. He is the bread of life, and when we consume Jesus through our belief in him, through our faith in him, then he has eternal life to give to us. And today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the rest of this discourse. Uh, it's probably a little bit doctrinally deeper than, than normal. Uh, we're going to look at the rest of this discourse, and we are going to look at not only some of the controversial things that Jesus said here, but also uh, focus a little bit on the various reactions that people have to what Jesus says. And the reason why it's good to see what happens when Jesus says something that is incredibly unpopular and very controversial is because what it does is it helps us see how deep their commitment is to following Jesus when there is no uh, social advantage to following Jesus and so when there is no uh, maybe physical advantage to following Jesus anymore. Uh, if you remember, 
crowds. They're following Jesus like he is a celebrity. And as soon as he says something unpopular by the end of our passage, what we see is uh, everybody abandons him except for the twelve. And uh, not only that, at the start of the next chapter, there is a segment of people who are so upset and so angry at what Jesus says that they now start to plot to kill him. So in a culture where Jesus is unpopular, I I suspect you'll probably see less uh, people advertising themselves as distinctively Christian, right? Uh, Because they don't want to be associated with something that is perhaps so offensive to everybody else. And that would reveal the depth of their commitment to Jesus rather than to what uh, Jesus can do for them in the moment. So it's good that Jesus, there are times when Jesus says something that's unpopular or offensive or controversial because I think what it ends up doing is it kind of shows us, well, who is actually deeply committed to Jesus as a person versus who is simply uh, using Jesus for uh, self-gain or um, self, uh, I don't know, yeah, I guess self-gain. I don't know another phrase, adjectival phrase, or synonymous phrase to use with that. Uh, so first, uh, let's take a look at what Jesus says and why it's so controversial, especially in that time. So Jesus, uh, the Jews are grumbling because Jesus says this, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I am the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus is making a pretty wild claim here, and I don't know if they would think he's saying something as direct as like, I am divine, right? I am, I am God. Uh, But he's putting himself in a category that is at least on par with God. So they ask, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Uh, They're saying, hey, don't we know this guy's parents? This is is a family that we are very familiar with. This is a very ordinary family. Uh, They're just normal folk. It it would be like if, uh, you know, maybe Timo says, all of a sudden, I am bread that came down from heaven. And all of us would be like, uh, isn't this Peter and Eunice's kid? <laughs> right? We've known him for a, a long time. Uh, how can he say something like that, right? Why does uh, this guy think he can say something as wild as like, I am the bread that came down from heaven? And if that weren't like wild enough, then Jesus says something else that they wouldn't like. He, would say, he, he says this, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And that's a a very interesting statement. Uh, Here's where it gets a little bit doctrinally deep. I'm not going to get too deep, but there there is a doctrine uh, in the Reformed tradition. uh, And speaking of like going, starting to go over the Heidelberg and the the confessions of of our denomination, uh, there's a doctrine in our Reformed tradition that confesses uh, something that has caused a certain level of discomfort with uh, some people. And it's the doctrine of election, or also known as like predestination. And it is the idea that Uh, The only way one can come to Jesus at all and to be saved at all is if God enables it in the first place, if God elects that person to be able to come to him through Jesus. Uh, Personally, I I have not had a difficult time with that doctrine, but I've spoken to many people who have, and I can kind of understand why that would be something difficult to receive or to accept or to swallow. Uh, To me, it does make sense because if salvation is going to be by God's grace, then God, of course, has to be the one who ultimately initiates it. Otherwise, um, I think I could claim, you know, my salvation is on account of God's grace, but it's also because of, and then you fill in the blank, it's also because of my upbringing. It's also because of my own appetite for God, or it's also because I'm uh, much more enlightened in my sensibilities. And I don't think I can attribute my salvation to any of those things, so my only conclusion has to be that God was gracious to me. 
Uh, but based on the conversations that I have had, mostly in the past, I haven't had it recently. I don't know if anybody really cares about that anymore. But in the past, I would have these kind of conversations all the time. And I think one of the reasons why people might struggle with this doctrine is because it's a, it's a hard truth to stomach if you were saying, you know, my own faith actually has very little to do with me. Uh, if it has very little to do with me, then, uh, or if it has, uh, you know, something to do with me, I can kind of make sense of it. And then I would feel like I have uh, some kind of agency or control uh, in terms of my eternal future. But if you say it's only by God's election, that's a little bit uncomfortable. Then it means I can't make sense of it uh, entirely, and it's completely out of my control, right? Uh, I always use this illustration because I think it makes the point pretty well. If you're drowning in the ocean and you scream, help, help, I'm drowning, and then someone saves you, then yeah, it is true that you had a part in your own salvation because it was a combination of screaming, help, help, I need somebody to help me, but also somebody coming down to help you, right? But the Bible's description of us doesn't say we are like a people who are drowning, who are about to die in our transgressions. Uh, it actually says that we are already dead. We are dead in our transgressions, and when you're dead, you can't even cry out for help, so we're at the bottom of the ocean, and someone actually has to come down to the bottom of the ocean and lift us up, raise us up, resurrect us. And that is how the Bible portrays salvation in relation to God's grace. But if you're of the assumption that uh, you're the person drowning and screaming for help, then what Jesus says here in verse 44 is going to sound pretty offensive. And I suspect many of the Jewish leaders, especially in this time, would have found that very offensive. He's saying, no one is able to essentially come to God unless the Father first draws you to me. And that's another way of saying, look, if you're going to reject me and you don't want to come to me, then it must be because the Father didn't choose you. And if you are a Jewish leader at that time, that would have been incredibly offensive to hear. They would say, Jesus, are you kidding me? Like, if, any, if God's going to choose anybody, it would be somebody like me. I've been very diligent in following the law. Uh, I've been very diligent in doing what uh, the law has been saying. And yet, you're going to say to me that if I reject you, Jesus, then it must mean the Father has not allowed me to uh, draw near. And, of course, they're going to be offended by that. And just to confirm that that is indeed what Jesus is saying here, he brings up this wilderness incident. And you remember what happens in the wilderness in Exodus chapter 16. The people of Israel, what do they do? They grumble against Moses and Aaron. The very same word that John uses here to describe the grumbling of the Jews. Jesus is comparing them to the unbelief of their forefathers who ate manna in the wilderness and died. And they probably grew up hearing the story of manna in the wilderness. And uh, you know, as they are hearing the story, like I'm talking about these uh, Jesus. Uh, Jewish leaders in Jesus' time, they're probably saying, oh, uh, yeah, our forefathers, they didn't believe, but we're not like that, right? We're, we would believe. Uh, and now all of a sudden Jesus is saying, hey, you're grumbling just like your forefathers grumbled. Your unbelief is the same as their unbelief. Okay, so offensive, crazy thing number one, I'm the bread that came from heaven. Offensive thing number two, right? Um, basically, God, God has to choose you. Here's crazy thing number three that Jesus says. If that weren't bad enough, Jesus goes for the jugular in terms of controversial sayings, and he now says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And you go, whoa, 
Jesus is saying, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Is he promoting some kind of, like, some form of cannibalism here, right? Uh, that's a very weird thing to say. And, of course, it's weird for the modern reader. But for the Jewish reader, it would have been even worse. Why? Because, did you know, in the law of Moses, it forbids the drinking of blood. It goes so far as to forbid the eating of meat with blood still in it. So, steak lovers, if you like your steak rare, uh, you cannot eat that, right? Uh, if you're a Jewish person and you're taking Jesus literally here, and now Jesus is saying uh, not only something that is offensive and wild and insulting, but now he is saying, you got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Now he is proclaiming, uh, saying that you have to transgress the law of Moses, right? When he says, you got to drink my blood. And Jesus, of course, here, he's not speaking literally. We've already seen that Jesus would use a metaphor to convey a spiritual truth that would oftentimes be misunderstood because people took it literally. Remember he says, I will destroy the temple, raise it three days. And they said, how are you going to uh, rebuild this temple when it took so many, so, so, uh, such a long time to build? And of course he was talking about his body. Remember when he talks to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus' response is like, how does somebody enter into his mother's womb again for a second time? A Samaritan woman talks about living water, and to which she responds, like, give me, I have, I have my pill here, right? Give me this water. Give me this living water. So you kind of see this pattern, Jesus talking uh, somewhat, like, metaphorically, and then people misunderstanding it and taking it literally. And here, of course, it's no different. Jesus is saying, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and their response is, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So, now we see Jesus says something very controversial, very wild, crazy. He had the crowds. Jesus was a celebrity. They, they were seeking after him. They were gathering him. He had to run away from these crowds. And now Jesus says something that is very unpopular, and what happens? You know what a Fairweather fan is, right? A fan, if you're a Jets fan, you're not a Fairweather fan, right? <laughs> Uh, a Fairweather fan is like somebody, you just, you're a fan of somebody because like, they're winning, right? Make, they make you feel good. Um, but if you're a Jets fan, you're loyal. <laughs> 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 anyway, <clears throat> uh, so let's say like, Fairweather fans of Jesus, they're gone, right? <clears throat> the ones who only wanted Jesus for the things that he could do or provide, they're completely turned off. And now they abandon him. And that's what it says in verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. But who stayed? The 12, right? At this point, <clears throat> maybe you think I would say, look at these 12 faithful disciples who stuck by Jesus. Look at their faith and commitment to Jesus. We need to be like these, uh, these 12 disciples. But that's not the message either. Maybe they took offense at what Jesus said too, right? So what makes these 12 disciples different from the rest of the crowd? Why do they stick with Jesus even though perhaps they were offended by what Jesus said? I think we find our answer actually in the words of Simon Peter and what he says. Jesus asked the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answers him, right? This is what he says. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we believe and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Look at the first part about, of what Peter says. Lord, to whom shall we go? 
I think that tells us actually a great deal of what it actually means to be a disciple of Jesus. Peter feels like there's nowhere else to turn. It doesn't say he liked what Jesus says, but there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to turn except to Jesus. He has no sense that he can save himself. He has no sense that he can secure uh, eternal life apart from Jesus. He is in this line admitting that he is entirely powerless and helpless. And there's a difference between saying Jesus is beneficial to me versus saying there's no one else I can turn to except to Jesus. It's a subtle difference there. Uh, We are in New York, and I'm sure many of you know the power of networking, right? Uh, The more connections you have to other people, the better opportunities you may have. So uh, maybe when you were younger, you would go to all kinds of networking events, and, uh, you know, you have it, like, among pastors, too. I hated these things because um, uh, I'm not, like, cool, and there's no reason why somebody would want to talk to me. (laughs) There's nothing I could, like, offer other people. So, uh, you know, what would end up happening, like, People would, you know, say, oh, who are you, basically? And then it's like, oh, this person has no use to me. And then they would talk to somebody else. But I could tell a high-character person when they still talk to me. I was like, oh, yeah, I have nothing to offer you, but you still want to talk to me. All right, these, these are kind of how, like, these networking events go. And typically people are looking around and saying, like, oh, who can I meet who will be beneficial to me, who can open up doors and opportunities? And by the way, I'm not saying that's, like, a, a negative thing. I'm not critiquing networking at all. But what I am saying is, There's a difference in terms of how you relate to a person like that and saying, how is this person going to be beneficial to me versus, let's say, for example, you have this very rare disease and there's only one doctor in the world who has the treatment for this disease. It's nice to know certain people if they can benefit you, but if you were to meet this one doctor who can treat your uh, ailment, you would probably, uh, you wouldn't say, well, I need you to, uh, you wouldn't say, like, oh, you're beneficial to me. You would go to this doctor. you say, doctor, I need you to treat me because you're the only one that can treat me. I, I need you, right? To whom shall I go? And even if that doctor says something unpopular, you still know that doctor is the only one who can give you life. And you, you come to that doctor and say, I, I need you, doctor. Mm, what kind of disciple are you? Are you the one who networks with Jesus and says, Jesus is nice to have because there's certain benefits that come to uh, knowing Jesus. There's certain benefits to identifying as a Christian. Uh, is Jesus your networking buddy? <laughs> or is Jesus the one you desperately need because you know there is no other way? There is no one else who can give you life. There is no one else who can give you the hope that you long for or the security that you long for. I hope that for many of us, and my suspicion is for, like for, um, for most of us, uh, it is the latter because, like I said, I don't think it's as advantageous to being a, be a Christian today as it used to be. Uh, so if you are in church today, um, you know, I think there's, there's a reason. Um, but I hope it's the latter. And we're looking at Jesus and saying, I need you. Right? I need you not for what you have to give me, not for the physical bread you can give to me, but you. I need you. You know, uh, 
I heard uh, a pastor say, <clears throat> uh, like, I guess he would categorize like three kinds of people you might see at church. So you might see one, a, a believer, two, a non-believer, right? But then he broke those categories of believer down into two categories. And he says, but amongst the believer category, you might have the kind of believer um, who externally says they believe, but internally uh, doesn't really, or internally their motives are, are wrong, and they're not really looking for Jesus, right? And he would say uh, a healthy church is probably going to be made up of like people who right, have the, the right heart and really long for Jesus, along with people who uh, are pretty open and saying, I, I reject Jesus, right? Those two categories are probably what you want a church to be made up of. But then he said that third category of people who kind of are uh, hypocritical or pretending to be Christian uh, because it's advantageous, what he says is those are actually the most dangerous group for a church. Uh, and the example he uses is like a health ailment. He would say, you know, it's, it's better to bleed externally than to bleed internally. Because if you're bleeding externally, you know something is wrong, you know you're losing blood, and then you can treat it. But if you're bleeding internally and you don't know it, then your life is really in danger. The most threatening kind of person to the church is the one who claims to follow Jesus on the outside, but internally there is no life with Jesus, right? There is no connection with Jesus. It's, it's just kind of pretending on the outside. Why is that person the most dangerous to the church? Because inevitably uh, when that person abandons Jesus, when Jesus becomes unpopular, that person is going to say, I can't follow Jesus because something is wrong with Jesus. When the reality is, what was wrong with, with um, that situation was the person's heart. Uh, you know what the best biblical example of this is? It's in our passage. It's at the end of our passage. We get a hint of it at the end of the passage. Jesus says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Judas is a very interesting figure. Uh, he was the one who walked with Jesus, who was considered one of the twelve, and yet ended up betraying Jesus for a bag of silver, for a bag of money. I don't know why Judas would do that, uh, beyond the obvious observation that he thought the bag of money was more valuable or more important than Jesus himself. But I would say what made Judas dangerous was, I would say even over like the Jewish leaders who said, I want to kill Jesus, is externally it looked like Jesus was a disciple. But internally, he was hungry and he never consumed Jesus, the bread of life, in the way that Jesus offered it to him. This passage, mm, I think, is, is, a, is a warning uh, but this passage is also giving us a guide. Jesus is our bread. The words that he speaks to us are spirit and life. To whom shall we go? To whom? Do you think it's um, to your successful career or to a bank account or to a lifestyle or to a geographic region? or to a relationship, or whatever it might be, to fill that hunger? Or do you know the only one who can really fill that hunger, quench that thirst, 
is the one who has the words of eternal life, that Jesus is our bread of life. When we come to him, like the way Simon uh, or Peter describes in, in here, when we come to him and saying, to whom shall we go? We have no other option if we want to be satisfied in our souls. To whom shall we go? I am empty, I am poor, I am helpless, I am weak, I am powerless. To whom shall I go? He promises to abide in us so that we can abide in him. He promises to give us the bread of life in himself that wells up to eternal life. And that's what we need. That's what a true disciple is. It's not what we do externally. (laughs) It's how deeply we need him internally. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we thank you that there is a way that you've given to us in Jesus, that he is the, the living bread and that um, in Christ there is an offer to us to, uh, to be able to consume him. Of course, not uh, in a physical way, but spiritually, that we can abide in him and he abides in us, that we can know him and that he can uh, fill our souls with the very bread that we need. And when we feel that temptation to um, maybe to uh, be just like the crowds and to just look to Jesus when we think there's an advantage to us, I pray, God, that you would, by your grace, remind us that more than uh, the other kinds of advantages that Jesus himself is our treasure. That to know him is to know life. To know him is to have treasure. To know him is to be satisfied. So help us to see this Jesus and to have the heart of Simon Peter. To whom shall we go? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.